Lauren. Mike. Lauren, are you doing Dry January? I am, and I'm also doing something called Cry January. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it's, it's when you wake up every day and you just cry because you just can't figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> are you doing Dry January or Cry January for that matter? Um, no, but I am drinking a lot of alcohol. Oh, all right. I think we call that Try January, like try to get through it. Well, whatever you call it, we're going to talk about all of those things on this week's show. Crying, trying, and drying. There's probably going to be some crying. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And we are also joined this week by Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers. Hi, Adam. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Mike. Hi, Lauren. Nice of you to have me back. Hi. I hope that you plan on coming back in the future, Adam, but we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But that's going to be the crying portion of the show. Well, right now, we're going to talk about booze, or more accurately, the lack of it. A lot of people out there, including many of our listeners, are observing dry January, which means they are abstaining from alcohol the entire month of January. Overall, people's alcohol consumption has increased during the pandemic. But dry January is a pretty big movement. And it's been growing. According to polls from YouGov and Morning Consult, somewhere between 13 and 15% of American adults took a break from alcohol in January of last year. Where some people see dry January as an opportunity to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol, liquor distributors and marketers see it as a way to entice you with non-alcoholic booze. So in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about the cultural implications of Dry January and how it's led to a growing interest in alcohol-free spirits, zero-alcohol cocktails in a can, even non-alcoholic beer is getting a makeover. But first, we want to talk about the science of non-alcoholic drinks, because they're not always easy to craft. And this is why we have Adam Rogers on as our guest. Adam, in 2014, you wrote a great book on how alcohol is made and how it affects the human body. The book is called Proof, The Science of Booze. Everybody should read it. It's available wherever books are sold. <laughs> Let's start with that same topic, but we'll make it The Science of Not Booze. So Adam, my big question to you, how difficult is it to get the spank out of my hooch? <laughs> it, I, HR, HR. What? I beg your pardon? <laughs> Oh, uh, the, the, oh man, I'm about to say it's pretty hard. <laughs> no, Mike, I assume so. I assume it is. Um, it, it is because, um, well, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but just to lay down some of the, to pregame this party a little bit, the way that you make booze is you take something that has particular kinds of sugar in it that are available, which means that they can be eaten by yeast. The yeast eat the sugar, they excrete alcohol, ethanol, which has some flavor implications for human beings and also some psychoactive effects that may be familiar to some of our listeners. And you can then take that stuff and then run it through a machine called a still, which is uh, kind of a way to separate out different sorts of molecules based on how heavy or light they are using heat. And using those sets of processes, you can make things like if you start with grains, you can make beer. If you start with grapes, you can make wine. If you put the beer essentially into that still and then distill it, you get whiskey. If you put the wine into the still and distill it, you get brandy. And then you can use any, any substrate 
they're usually fruit, sometimes they're grain, turned in, messed with in some way to make the sugar available to the yeast, and you then get fermentation and distillation. Those are the ways that you make the things that we uh, drink if we're people who drink alcohol. Okay, so the question is, if you want to make something that tastes like one of those things, or is recognizably one of those specific things, a, your, a beer or a wine or a, or a whiskey or a, or a rum or whatever, do you, do you try to make it in a different way that doesn't involve the alcohol or do you make it and then get the alcohol out? Mm -hmm. those, are, those are sort of your choices. And those both have challenges because the alcohol, in addition to the, the way it can make people feel, um, it, it, it also changes uh, the flavor of things. Alcohol is an interesting molecule. It's, it has both a hydrophilic side and a hydrophobic side. It has a side that will repel water and water type molecules and it will attract those. And, and that has all sorts of implications for what sorts of flavors, what sorts of aromatic molecules can dissolve in it. So you know about if things are water soluble or fat soluble, if they'll dissolve in water or dissolve in fat. Alcohol has kind of traits of both of those things. So a lot of the flavors that come through in a wine or a beer or a whiskey or all those things, all those categories that you can name, are, 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 are those flavors are present because the alcohol is there. So how do you make those flavors still be there but not have the alcohol in it? Okay, so that's the that's the scope of the problem, right? Mm. Um, so what can you do? Well, you could um, essentially redistill the product. So distillation is a way of concentrating. When we, we use distillation now to concentrate the alcohol, basically, if you, because yeast will die at a certain high concentration of alcohol in a solution. So you can really only get to about 15% alcohol just using fermentation. Um, and that's about, a, that's a, a sake, let's say, or you know, a, a very a, strong a, wine, strong wine. Exactly. Um, California cab. Right? <laughs> uh, and, but if you want more alcohol, you use, you use a still because it concentrates out the alcohol and also carries even more intense flavors, those flavors that are soluble in the alcohol. So you, what you do is you heat it up, you turn things into vapor, and then you recondense those vapors on the other side those cool off. And then sometimes you put all that stuff in a barrel and you age it for a long time. So it sucks some of the flavor out of the wood while it's aging too. Okay. So you can actually invert that process. And you can distill it, get the alcohol out, and then take what's left behind instead of taking what goes over the top of the still. Um, th that has a problem because then you you're, you're usually use heat to do that. Heat affects those molecules also, so that changes the flavor. So then you can do this thing called vacuum distillation. You can put the whatever you're trying to distill into a vacuum or a partial vacuum, and because of the way uh, because of the way um, sort of the physics and chemistry of this work, because pressure times volume is equal to the uh, temperature times the number of moles times a constant. That's the ideal gas law. Hang um, on, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah, you can go down. You can tweak all of those variables. So if you have a vacuum, you can use a lower temperature to do the same distillation. So you don't have a temperature affecting the molecules that are making flavor. Um, so that's vacuum distillation. That's one approach. And, and I think they use that with some of the beers and, and wine, especially now beers, I think. Um, you could also just try a filter. You know that that makes sense. You could come up with a with a reverse osmosis, like you use to get salt out of seawater or something, and figure out the right kind of membrane so that it'll hold the keep the alcohol on one side and let everything else through, or filter everything out, keep all the flavors on one side, and then get some of the flavors out that have been that are in the alcohol, but let the alcohol go away on the other side and put those flavors back in. You could try that. Or you could do uh, you could do some sort of combination of everything where you like. Let's say you want to take the flavor, you want the flavors, so you macerate that, you soak them in the alcohol, 
then filter the alcohol out, keep the flavors, and then add other stuff to that mix to try to capture some of the other um, uh, organoleptic effects of the alcohol. Alcohol, in addition to having flavor, it, alcohol can taste somewhat sweet. It can taste somewhat bitter, but it also has effects on the trigeminal nerve that goes down through your jaw and up through your tongue. And it's the thing that registers heat and cold and pain. So some of the people who make um, the alcohol-free spirits especially will add other ingredients that have what they will what they will argue are similar organoleptic effects like uh, ginger or capsaicin like in a hot pepper or something that'll give you that what people will think of as the sting or the burn of alcohol but but these are all subjective effects i i don't perceive alcohol as much that way as some people do um and then you also have to think about things like the tannins that you taste from a from aging in wood let's say how do you how do you evoke those those are pretty hard to get but you can do it you can soak stuff in wood and then pour that out like a tea you know it, it, and then you you as you kind of professionalize this and, and get more into the chemistry of it there's a whole industry of of flavors and aromas that that works with both the perfume world and kind of the and flavor chemistry. So I, I think there are a couple of the beers, including one that I like, that's basically just beer flavored soda pop, where you essentially have, you know, carbonated water and maybe some sugar and then the flavor, the artificial or the natural flavors that you then mix in there. And so it's beer flavored, you know, and it is like beer, but there's no alcohol in it. So anyway, that's the sort of shape of it and how it you might try it if you were going to start one of these companies. Mike, did you get all that? Yes, I am actually going to start <laughs> one of these companies right now. <laughs> I have a question about GMO non-alcoholic drinks. How long before we're all just drinking something with genetically modified yeast or something that effectively creates the same flavor but without the alcohol? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there were already, even when I wrote when I wrote proofs, this is a few years back now, there were people who were starting to experiment with either engineering strains of yeast or um, or using traditional breeding methods where you know what gene you want so you can just breed them together, you know, so that you don't have to scare people by saying, oh, it's genetically engineered, which there are still whole continents that don't allow those kind of products um, to produce more of one kind of flavor or another and maybe produce less alcohol. Um, probably hard to get them to produce no alcohol at all because that's sort of part of the process, but maybe less that you'd have to filter out um, you could also imagine, uh, you know, the, the production of a, uh, not using alcohol, but, a, but still having a psychoactive product in it. If the alcohol was the thing that somebody was worried about. So it really sort of depends on what, on why people don't want to have, want, want to drink as much. What thing are they worried about? The, the psychoactive and, and addictive effects of alcohol? Are they worried about the physiological effects of drinking a lot of alcohol? Are they worried, you know, what thing are they trying to avoid? How do, and how do you accommodate that in terms of a, um, you know, to be responsive to, not to be all gross about it, but to that market. Um, so I guess the question then is, what do you want to engineer there? Do you want to engineer a yeast to make less alcohol? That's definitely, that. that's something that, that people are working on and you could really think about that, um, to make sort of intensify some flavors and not make as much of the alcohol in the process um, or to do it faster, let's say, so that they're, the yeast are, you know, excreting a lot of those flavors at the very beginning and, and less alcohol. So you take them out or something like that. Um, yeah, that, that, th those are all good strategies. It's just really hard. And now you're in the, you get into the world of, okay, well now you don't, now you don't need a, a winemaker or even an engineer who can build you a vacuum distiller. You need a biochemist, you need a geneticist and you need the big um, expensive fermenters um, where you can have the yeast and pull the yeast out and extract the right 
molecules that you want. And these are complicated problems in all of food science and in pharmaceuticals as well, because there are places that are trying to use yeast to make all kinds of useful molecules um, for drugs and all sorts of stuff too. So you touched on the physiological element of alcohol or abstaining from alcohol. And we've heard a lot in recent years about how red wine ha supposedly has health benefits from people, right? That the, that the polyphenols are actually good for you. And I think in some cases people use that as justification for imbibing. And I'm wondering if non-alcoholic wines then have the same health benefits or potentially are even more healthy as a result, because you're stripping the alcohol from them, but the polyphenols presumably are still in it. And I actually did some digging last night trying to find you know, studies on this. And there were a lot of references online to this one study in 2012 that suggested that de-alcoholized red wine is better for you. Um, but I couldn't find much since then. And I was wondering if you, as our senior correspondent and science guy, might know a little bit more about this. Have, have, you, have you found de-alcoholized wine that you found palatable? I'm trying one right now as part of dry January slash cry January. It's called Luminara. Um, it's, it's a quote unquote Napa Valley red and it is completely dealcoholized. And I thought it would just taste like grape juice basically, because that's what it is. And I don't particularly like grape juice and I don't particularly like grapes. I like my grapes fermented <laughs> and alcoholized <laughs> typically, <laughs> but, um, I have found that if you chill this and you have it with a meal that you might typically have a glass of red wine with, it sort of satisfies a certain craving you might be having. It's not great. I'm not going to say it's great, but the mouthfeel of it, the palate is a little bit different than just drinking grape juice. Well, let me, you've touched on a lot of really important things in that answer. I, I'll say, I'll, I'll give you my answer to the question of whether, uh, whether I've had a palatable dealkalized wine, the answer is no. I've had a lot of things that tasted pretty good that you could enjoy in, a, in lieu of a, not in lieu of, that you could enjoy at a meal that would be pleasant to drink at a meal. But the important thing to me, the important thing you just said there was how to, how, how it fits into the, to satisfy the craving of how the, the how the drink fits into the theater. What I always think of as the theater of drinking, the, 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 the pleasure that we have come, we've come to associate the bottle of wine with the good meal or the glass of, or the martini at the bar or the glass of whiskey, you know, at the end of the evening, can you, how much of the trying to figure out for yourself, how much of the thing that you enjoy is the ritual of the pour from the beautiful bottle into the beautiful glass at the, at the right moment. And how much of it is how much, how it actually tastes and smells and how much of it is the psychoactive effect of the alcohol and, and oh, absolutely. Kind of disaggregating all those things is, is really very difficult. Um, no, it's a, it's a good question. And I'll note too, that last year when I did dry January, I ended up extending it for months. And I found plenty of other things that I enjoyed just as much, if not more so than alcohol, like coffee or tea in the evening or this non-alcoholic beer brand that we've talked about a lot on this podcast that we really like. Sometimes that would satisfy like the, the post-exercise with friends. People want to go grab a beer. I, you know, I'll have the non-alcoholic beer. Like it just satisfied that need. There, it's, it's the ritual of it that I found was like very easy to replace and therefore it was very easy to go non-alcoholic. Now you, you asked specifically about physiological health effects too, right. which is a separate category, right? And an interesting one. Um, I think that the health, nutrition science is so, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mess. It's hard for people to operationalize because of how confusing and contradictory the, the actual field is. Um, and that's why there's space for like diet fads and things like that. Uh, 
because we hope somebody else will have operationalized nutrition science and, and nobody nobody really has except for some very basic things like you know don't eat too much meat and get some exercise and that sort of stuff um i think that the health benefits of red wine are probably more in play than most people think uh the so-called french paradox of like how come these countries that drink so much red wine are so healthy it's like well they have a lot of other healthy habits too was probably the answer and they also we're not talking about we're talking about a glass of wine with dinner we're not talking about you know the a bottle they, of wine with breakfast. <laughs> right the, the stuff you're trying to accommodate by having a dry january yeah. um and i don't i'm not uh exempting myself from any of that by the way um but uh so you know the question of whether is it if it's still kind of like wine you know will it have the polyphenols or whatever we think is in the red wine that was helping people with some be more healthy i, I mean it i guess it might um you know the 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 question is whether those are more soluble in the alcohol so if you take the alcohol out if you're making it that way if you take the alcohol out, you're taking those out too and i'm not sure anyway there's any way to know that plus i don't know that anybody's really calibrated the, the amount of polyphenols in various kinds of wine much less what the healthy uh pharmaceutical dose is of those so it's it's very hard to answer those kind of questions of what what that health benefit is also the vexing problem here is that could be that the reason that alcohol has a health benefit is that one drink calms you down and if you're stressed then the 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 those psychoactive effects of alcohol the depressive effects of alcohol like you get you get calmed down so if you had a really hard day where you're pumping out cortisol all day because you're super stressed out because you know you can't vaccinate your children against a pandemic because they're too young or something and they're home again because the schools are closed you know and so you you self-medicated <laughs> with a glass of wine and you calmed down and you felt better and like then you were a better parent somehow i don't know if that's all true like and it's different from person to person and then we tend to abuse those things um one if one glass of wine made you a better parent two glasses of wine did not um or something like that right i i, I don't know and it and it's it, it varies from person to person and, and it's super highly contextual which is why it's so tempting to take a month off in addition to the other health benefits of not drinking as much as as people may be because alcohol has an impact on your liver you can get fatty deposits that over time build up and can have health implications it has gas gastrointestinal effects you can be uncomfortable or worse it can, it can erode the the esophageal lining and the, and the gi tract it has impact on the stomach down there as well it has you know and these are just straight organic <laughs> effects on the organs much less what it does to your um your sense of habit forming and, and what kind of fights you get into with your partner if you have you know, one extra sip, um, and it changes your because they're because it changes your psychology. And these are things maybe you don't want to do anymore. And it would make sense to take that month off and sort of evaluate. Well, how much of that is me, and how much of that is the is the martini before dinner? Yeah, hitting pause. Uh, speaking of hitting pause, we're going to take a break and then come right back. So now that we know pretty much everything about how non-alcoholic beer and wine and booze is made, let's talk about how those things are being marketed. As we mentioned earlier, the alcohol-free options are going to stick around on the shelves after dry January is over. 
This is a really big cultural moment for zero alcohol drinks. So Adam, we'd like to get your read on this since you hang out with a lot of bartenders and, and nerds in the mixology world. How are the Boozerati embracing this trend of non-alcoholic drinks? Are they making new things? Are they poo-pooing it? Are they abstaining? It really has been striking. Um, a few uh, well-known, justifiably, justly famous uh, bartenders uh, have even written books with low and no alcohol recipes that try to evoke the the pleasures of a cocktail um, and and also the the flavor complexity. One thing about the kind of professional drinking world is that this is one of the ways that there's a contrast to me, and I don't know as much about this um, as some folks do, the contrast between the professional drinking world and like the um, legal marijuana world. That world will talk about different kinds of high, right? We'll talk about different ways that it affects your mental state. But the the professional drinking world has really, um, is very touchy about it. They'll, they'll talk, they talk about flavor and aroma and experience and, and complexity and mouthfeel and, 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 uh, and finishes and structure and stuff like that. And, and almost never, and never really admit like, wow, that really, that one really packs a wall up too. You know, they really don't do that as much unless it's a, you know, super high proof whiskey or rum, overproof rum or something. So they spend a lot of time talking about the, the taste experience and the drinking experience, which means that you can, you can make these recipes, these, these cocktail recipes that don't have alcohol in them that have a lot of other ingredients. And, and, It'll be really hard to tell, in fact, sometimes that there's no alcohol in them at all because there's all these other flavors and textures and things going on. They, they're much more complicated oftentimes. In a way, the, the, one of the parallels might be to high-end vegetarian cooking, like something that you are, know a lot about, right? Where a vegetarian, a vegetarian chili will be much, have many more ingredients and be much more complicated than a straight-ahead you know, Texas beef chili. It still tastes great, but, mm -hmm. but because, because the question is, are you trying to mimic the full experience of the other thing, or are you trying to make something new? Um, there's a big difference between a Beyond Burger or just tofu. Yeah, and like meatless dishes is a is a really good analogy because a lot of people, uh, you know, they don't like stuff like Beyond Burgers or Impossible Pork or whatever because they don't want to replicate the the feel and like the experience of eating meat. Yeah, exactly. Right. So a, a lot of, a lot of times they use that as like a, a way to get people away from eating meat. So uh, a non-alcoholic cocktail that tastes like it has alcohol in it could be a good way to get people away from the habit of drinking uh, an alcoholic cocktail. But once you're in that world, you're opened up to all of the different flavors and all of the new things that are available into that world instead of the same old, same old that you get from staying within those boundaries. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you a, here's a concrete example of that. Um, to me, I, I think uh, one of the most, a, a delicious thing that one could drink is a glass of Coca-Cola with lemon in it. That's a delicious, it's a legitimately delicious drink. How much um, lemon? <laughs> I would I actually half really like it. like half a lemon, half a like lemon. Cut a, cut a lemon into you know two quarters of a lemon, and squeeze both of those in there. Put that in there. Ice on top of it. Coca Cola from a glass bottle. Like that's delicious. Partially, it's delicious because Coca Cola is already a a lemon lime drink with um, spice flavors in it anyway, and caramel coloring. So you're just amping up a thing that's already in Coca Cola. Um, 
And then there's some other, you know, there's, there's some just legitimately great soda pops out there. Bundaberg ginger beer is to me a delicious, just that's fantastic, that stuff. Yeah. So you're still having a drink and it's, and it's even got a little of that, that bite, um, that organoleptic thing from the ginger, let's say. And you're not trying to mimic the experience um, of, of a, you know, it's, a, it's not a non-alcoholic spirit. That said, um, so so the, so the the bartending community is being very responsive to all that. They want people to still come to their bars, and also the bartending community has been has gotten very good in the past few years of recognizing some of its own health problems. Some of the 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 high rates of suicide among bartenders, the high rates of alcohol of addiction disorders among bartenders, and other kinds of addiction disorders among bartenders. Just some really unhealthy things going on in that community because of what they do for a living, you know? Um, so how do you respond to all that? You have to have different options for the people in the community and also for the people who, who are the customers of it. Because um, you want people to come and, and be safe when they leave. So they can come and have the, the social experience of a bar, but then also because our communities, especially in the United States, are so bad at giving people options for transportation other than driving cars, another bugbear of mine. Sorry, I'm flacking all of my stuff. Um, <laughs> That's, that was last week. Yeah. That was last week. Right? <laughs> how do you then, how do you make sure that, that people can still be there with their friends and have a good time and then make it home safely? Or yeah. even all of the, the interpersonal things that happen in bars where people have their inhibitions reduced and have their judgment impaired, um, which leads to all kinds of behaviors that you know, people either regret or are genuinely unsafe. Well, can, you, can we not have that as much as well? That would be great. Um, and they've been very responsive. So that, that mean, what does that response mean? Coming up with recipes that are still delicious and still have a lot of the fun of watching a bartender make something or still fizz and pop and you put citrus in and have a lemon rind and, and all that kind of fun. Um, and uh, also using the, the ingredients that are increasingly available. So not just the, the, um, the increasing number of non-alcoholic beers that are available, um, some of which are, are just delicious, are legitimately delicious on their own. Not even just like, wow, that really does taste almost exactly not unlike a beer, but like, no, that just tastes good. Um, or or the, the couple hundred um, non-alcoholic spirits, there's not really a good word um, to describe what those are, but non-alcoholic spirits seems to be what people are coalescing around. So the cocktail and, mm -hmm. and spirits writer Camper English is based, based here in the Bay Area with us, um, has been keeping an ongoing list on his website and and it's it's a couple hundred of them now and and you know some of them are it's stochastic some of them are really good some of them are to my taste really terrible i've, I've probably tasted a dozen maybe at this point so 10 percent of what's out there um less than that some of them are fine some of them will, would be more likely to appeal to lauren or to mike than to me just depending on what kind of flavors you're looking for i think they all i think many of them make a very specific mistake in how they're made but that's just for for me. Some people might like that, um, might like that flavor. I don't think that, that the flavor of ginger or the flavor of hot pepper is the way to evoke the flavor of alcohol. But reasonable people could disagree. <laughs> I'm curious what the truly sober crowd, those in recovery, might make of this embrace of temporary abstinence. You know, AKA Dry January. And we can't speak on behalf of those in that community. But I did notice when I told a sober friend that I was doing Dry January, they immediately said. But those drinks still have alcohol in them. Um, so can you drink some of these drinks if you're sober? And, and I wonder how much of this is wrapped up in, in the panacea of quote unquote wellness these days, as opposed to, okay, you really need to reevaluate your relationship with alcohol and like we need to evaluate sobriety. I think that's a, those are really important perspectives to try to assume here. And, and I, I don't, I'm not coming from those worlds either. So I'm, I wouldn't want to speak for them either. There's, there are entire uh, 
faith systems on this planet that say you shouldn't consume alcohol ever, you know, and you'd like to have a sociocultural structure that respects those and is inclusive of them as well. Tea is a really good example of all this to me because tea has all of the finicky collector detail things like, oh, you, you think you like oolong, but you haven't really had, um, you know, the, the, the really important fermented kind or whatever. Um, there was a, a San Francisco bartender and, and blogger back in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, who, who was really influential on my work, who um, now, who, who is now sober and who is a tea obsessive, how it pours and what it's like on the second day. Stuff like I'm that. drinking yeah. a fancy tea right now. Mike's wife made me a tea, a custom tea. Oh, yes. blue, blue flame. And it has lavender in it and a little bit of black tea. And Mike, you initially told me it had catnip in it, which I was very excited <laughs> about because I said, finally, my cat and I can share everything. Yeah. But um, but Hillary told me actually there is not catnip in it. It's And it's delicious. Yeah, I, no catnip. It does I have, have butterfly pea flower in it. So yes. when you brew it, it, it turns blue. It That's cool. Blue. And that's like, that's, it's you know, beautiful. gets to the heart of what we're talking about, which is that, you know, what a lot of people miss is the experience and like the, the ritual of these things. I think the big thing that's happening now that needs to happen more is that options need to be presented for non-alcoholic drinks in all social settings. You know, like you have people over for a party and you get a whole bunch of liquor and you get a whole bunch of beer and then you get like a 12 pack of LaCroix or something. And like we could do better, right? There are so, so many amazing uh, tasting and amazing looking and just sort of fun non-alcoholic options out there. It should be the same thing at restaurants and bars. Like, you know, they give you the 18 page list of all the different mezcals and stuff. They should have at least a page of, you know, virgin margaritas and like crazy things with tamarind and lime and salt and crickets. Who knows? Like, just, you know, make me something that is interesting that is not boring. Um, if we get better at that, I think we'll be in a better place as a, as a society of non-drinkers. There, I totally agree with that. And I'd add from the kind of a, a, a drinks making perspective, um, there are whole flavor profiles that we have come to equate with alcoholic drinks that we needn't, that, that don't have to be in an alcoholic drink. The whole kind of the universe of bitters, uh, you know, doesn't, is delicious and makes really interesting things to drink that are fun and cool and don't just taste like soda pop, you know, aren't, aren't kids drinks, aren't super sweet aren't super gross for your health because you probably shouldn't drink that much soda pop for other health reasons, um, but that don't have to be alcoholic. And that that's the thing that I would think anybody who was trying to make an interesting food or drink for people, either in your house or if you're, if you do that professionally would be, would be interested in. I would say separately, I, I always think that about the alternative proteins too, that people should be making new and different weird stuff, not fake burgers and fake chicken nuggets. And I'm constantly told that there's no market and nobody wants those and it can't be done. So I maybe don't trust me. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard when it costs millions and millions of dollars to develop something and then nobody buys it. That does suck, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what we're talking about is taking flavors of the earth and putting them in water and then putting them in bubbles and ice and presenting it with a flower. <laughs> Maybe a little umbrella. Just a little umbrella, a little slice of lime, <laughs> slice of pineapple and a cricket <laughs> for the crunch. I'm serious, like bugs and drinks. It's 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 the new thing. This is 2022 right here. Bugs and drinks. <sighs> Maybe actually there could be like a little umbrella, a cricket and then like one of those covid swabs. So you can just kind of pluck it out of your drink, you know, run it through your nose. Right before you go in for the straw, you just stick <laughs> right. it up into your nose <laughs> That's first. Right. 
hand that back to your server. All right. Well, this what conversation. What a time to be alive. This conversation has had both the uh, intellectual and psychoactive uh, components that I was looking for. So thank you both. Um, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Welcome back. So for being honest, this whole conversation about dry January and booze and yada yada science science, it was just a thinly veiled excuse to get Adam on the show one last time. What? This, this is Adam's last week at Wired after 18 years of covering just about every bit of science and nerdy pop culture news and topic you can think of. So Adam, we're going to miss you and thank you for coming back on the show one last time. We appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you back after you go off to your new thing somewhere that I don't care about because it's not Wired. I am, I am, I'm forever at your service uh, for this. I think you both know how much I not only enjoy doing the podcast with you, but how much uh, I value you as, as colleagues, all three of you as colleagues and as friends. Um, I've been privileged to be the part of many, many teams uh, at Wired over the years. Uh, and I feel in a small way I've been part of this one because I've been on a few times. So, you know, Boone and Mike and Lauren, this is um, this is always a delight for me, and and I'll just say that that it's not just because you are all super cool and super smart, but that you do your jobs with a level of integrity and honesty and transparency and skill that not many people in our field broadly and in the ones you focus on especially really do ever get to could hope to aspire to. So it really has been an honor. Um, I mean that to 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 sit with you virtually and really to see you work, to learn from you. It's just been great. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much, Adam. We miss you tons already. <clears throat> Truly, it's been such a privilege working with you and learning from you. So thank you. And um, remember, you know, at Wired, we're fans of boomerangs. So um, if you ever want to just, you know, make a rapid comeback, you know, get to your new place and just think, wow, I really miss those kind, smart folks at Wired. We're, he we're here for you. Or even just come by for a drink. Just come by for a drink. And uh, those of you who are listening to the podcast won't get to hear this, but because it's dry January, we're not toasting Adam, we're roasting Adam. And that <laughs> will be happening tomorrow virtually on Zoom. Um, oh, man. Like I said, unfortunately, you won't be able to hear that, but we trust that it's going to be a good one. Yeah, that's well, that's uh, not, uh, for, not for attribution. <laughs> on background <laughs> I'll tell you uh, some I think we've mentioned maybe in the past on this podcast that one of the one of the traditions at, at Wired for a long time has been something that we called Start Lounge that was named after the, the start section which is the front of the book section years ago um, that was Friday afternoon uh, drinks at Wired and um, and that was always one of my favorite things to have a sort of quiet place to to talk to colleagues at the end of the week um the uh the the dark deep dark secret origin of that is that one of the reasons i helped start it is that i was sure that i had spent the rest of the week totally alienating my colleagues and being a complete jerk <laughs> that they were all going to be so mad at me that the only way i could bring it back around was by you know having a nice having a nice drink with people um at the end of the week so <laughs> i hope that worked yeah it did it fooled me yeah. Please give us your final recommendation on your appearances on the Gadget Lab show. Now's your chance. Tell us all what we should do with the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, here, okay. 
three. I have three recommendations, but I promise to go fast. First one, in keeping with the the spirit, if you will, of the show this week, um, there are these there are things, uh, particular drinks called bitters that come in these little tiny bottles. They're carbonated, and uh, you can get them uh, at like they're mostly a lot of them are Italian. So if you have an Italy in your town, they'll sell them. You can also get them on Amazon. There's a there's a Pellegrino one, I think. Um, and they taste delicious and they have that bitter flavor profile. It is like, if you, if you're the kind of person who likes a Campari or an Americano or something like that, they taste like those. There's two that I really like. You can get these on Amazon. They're way too expensive, but you can get them. One is called Crodino. Instead of being red, it's orange, it's cute little orange bottles. Another one is called Giusto Sapore Italian Red Bitters. They come in little six packs. They're great. And you put them in a little glass with a little ice as you're cooking dinner and they're wonderful. That's you know, my... there was uh, one that I had in Italy and it was a San Pellegrino flavor. It was called cocktail. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I can't find it here. They're, they're great. They're really, really good. Um, so good. So there's that. My second recommendation is to indulge your hobbies. I have been very lucky to professionalize a lot of the things that I was interested in. I've written about a lot of them at Wired. If you have the opportunity to do that in your life, to, um, Get interested in stuff and chase it down, whether you're going to write about it for other people or not. I highly recommend that. It's a it's a luxury um, in a lot of different ways. It's a luxury. Um, my third recommendation is to uh, subscribe to Wired. It's a great publication. Some really <laughs> terrific people work there, and uh, they write about a lot of fascinating stuff. So I, I I can't recommend it enough. Are we still doing five bucks for a year? I think, I think we, we are. are. I got to subscribe. I've never had a subscription to Wired before. I have to actually subscribe to Wired. I don't know how to... It's pretty cheap. Those are great. Those are great. Way to go out on a high note. Uh, Lauren, what are your recommendations? You can have just one. It's fine. Okay. I'll just do one, except it has a really, really long name and it's in German. So I am definitely butchering this. It's called Lietz's. Eins, Y, zero, zero, I get. Sparkling, Riesling, non-alcoholic, white wine. That is, how many words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It is ten words for one product. However, it is a completely alcohol-free, sparkling, white wine. And it's, I think, the best one I've tried of all the things I've been trying. It is a favorite at baby showers, which is how I first discovered it. <laughs> um, and um, I recommend it if you're doing dry January or just dry in general and um, are looking for a nice sparkling wine. And we'll link to that <laughs> so you don't have to try to run a Google search. It's a clever name. It's Eins, zwei, zero, which is one, two, zero. Instead of Eins, zwei, dry. Instead of Eins, zwei, dry, because it's a dry white wine. Exactly. That's funny. Yeah. You explained that to me the other day, Mike, and I was like, yes, that makes sense. And also you just pronounced it so much better. I should have just had you read the recommendation, but that's my recommendation. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, that was great. Um, Mike, what's your recommendation? Okay. So I have a recommendation that has nothing to do with um, drinking or, or baby showers or anything like that. Um, it's a streaming radio service. It's a free streaming radio station. It's called Radio is a Foreign Country. Uh, it is a nonprofit platform for streaming music that was captured on AM, FM, and shortwave radio stations around the world. So it has all kinds of stuff on it. It has speeches from like 
West Africa. It has uh, Greek music. It has Native American music and First Nations music. Uh, it has a lot of stuff from Southeast Asia, as you can imagine. Um, and it's just this wild, eclectic, very bizarre sort of avant-garde leaning radio station. Um, I it's it's not something that is easy to find on a lot of the big platforms like TuneIn. Uh, it's browser based. So you just go to radioisaforeigncountry.org and there's like a player on the page. I just leave it open in a tab all day and listen to it. And sometimes it's like someone walks into the room and they say, what are you listening to? And it's either because they're very excited or they're very annoyed. So it's that kind of experience. Uh, anyway, I, I just love it. You know, I like weird stuff and it is just like a treasure trove of weird. Uh, so that's my recommendation. Radio is a foreign country. I, I don't know. I grew up on radio and radio has always been like a discovery mechanism for me for music. And now that there's not really radio anymore, it's just kind of fun to have something that feels like radio where you don't really know what it is and you have to sort of do a little bit of research to find it. I like that. Gotta have a ritual. That sounds really cool. I'll have to check it out. I do miss sometimes the serendipity of old school radio broadcasts. And it sounds like this features a lot of good cut-ups of different segments. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Once again, thank you one last time to Adam Rogers for joining us. It is always a delight. Thank you for having me. I, I, I appreciate it. And I will miss you all. We miss you already, Adam. Yes, I'm I'm going to uh, cry into my N.A. beer later. So thank you for, <laughs> for everything. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye. We will be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.